Uh, it means more recent years to continue to pray for us. Uh, I'm even thankful this morning for the prayer of prayer for that. Uh, we've grown to the point where we can be very comfortable if we would let ourselves be comfortable. And yet you might know that Fuller is one of the fastest growing cities in the state of Georgia right now. And so I ask that you pray for boldness, that we would never be comfortable, but always say there, there as the city grows, there are more and more people who don't know Christ. And may God give us the boldness and the courage to, to persevere and to keep reaching out, to never be content, but always to be willing to pray, even as Jesus teaches us here, that God's kingdom would come in Fuller and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So thank you again for your partnership in the gospel. This morning we are in Matthew chapter 6. Even as over the last couple of days we've been thinking about prayer, my encouragement just then is to, for you to see prayer not as a burden, but an opportunity. An opportunity to go before the king of all creation and make certain petitions known. And so we've seen that starting Friday night. I've been zeroing in on what specifically would God perhaps be encouraging our hearts to pray for. We've considered a number of those. Uh, an opportunity to confess our sins. An opportunity to intercede on behalf of others, our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as those uh, who don't know the Lord. And so this morning it becomes an opportunity to pray for the expansion of the kingdom of God through the church. So I want to see Jesus' uh, the way in which he teaches us to pray and to think about how that connects with with not only the church universal, but this specific church. God wants us to pray for his, his name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, and his will to be done. What does that look like in working itself out within this local body? What are specific requests as we may even hear? And so Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 are the, the text I want to focus in on. Back up and start in verse 5 uh, so that we get a little bit of context. Simply be reminded, the Bible is inspired and there, infallible word of God. It's our only rule of faith and practice. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I thank you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap upon empty phrases, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you, what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May God bless us the reading and preaching of his holy word. You, you may know the name John Girardeau, the, the old Presbyterian minister who labored for years in Charleston, South Carolina. In 1851, he was approached about the possibility of preaching at a, a much larger Presbyterian church, uh, thinking that would be an enticement to him. But he said, no, here is my heart, here's my desire, that I would start a church with African slaves. And so out of the Second Presbyterian Church in Charleston, he started, and his methodology is what I want you to consider for a moment. He said, what I want to do is simply this. I want to take the people of this uh, that have come around and, and to start this church, and I want to break them in groups, and we would pray together. And we would love, and we would care for one another, that we'd be able to hold one another accountable in these 
smaller groups and spend time in that way. And then in addition to that, what I want to do is I want to preach the word. He would intentionally have no semblance of a business plan about the way in which he was uh, starting this church. It was meet together, pray together, and study God's word. That was what he would do. That was the master plan of it all. We begin to see here a reliance upon the Lord. I mean, these are these uh, the members gathering together. People, these are people that uh, their, their masters wouldn't even let them learn to read and write, and so they just simply got together and they prayed and they studied God's word. And the Lord did wonderful things. Started out with something like thirty-six members. By 1860, there are six hundred members in the church. There are fifteen hundred people coming every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. They memorized, as a, as a body as a whole, they memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the Lord used them mightily through that very simple plan of praying and studying His Word. And what I want you to understand is that's not the only time that's ever happened. In fact, that seems to be the regular practice in which the, the Lord has ordinarily used His church. Think of the early church. In Acts chapter 1, Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is uh, gathering. He's about to ascend to heaven. We read these words in Acts 1, 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he says to wait. Of course, they don't simply wait sitting on their hands, as it were, but they waited in prayer. We read that in verse 12 of the same chapter. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount of called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And these were in one accord, verse 14 says, they were of one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. That's what they were doing. And God, I think, not mistakenly, uh, not coincidentally, but God chose that moment to be the moment whereby he would pour out his spirit. And you see that over and over again. You can look at that in in Acts chapter 4 or Acts chapter 12 or Acts chapter 13. God is moving in the hearts of his people to pray and respond in amazing ways. He's teaching us that in his word. He's teaching us that in church history. And we can learn from that lesson. God calls us to pray. He calls us to plead for the expansion of the kingdom of God through the church so that we might in this sense pull back and watch God do his wonderful work even before our very eyes. With that in mind, we come to Matthew 6 and see Jesus is going to teach us how to do that. He's going to give us specific petitions, ways in which we can pray for God to do this wonderful work. And tonight we'll think about the, the end of this prayer where God says, I'll, I'll give you the, the right, the encouragement to pray for your own needs. But here's where he starts with, with kingdom concerns. It concerns over his name. And so we begin to think through what this looks like to pray. Of course, in verses 5 through 8, he's compelled to, to correct some abuses that have crept in to the way in which people pray. They are praying to be heard by other people. They were standing in just the right spots. They were posturing themselves so that they would be the object of their prayers, not, not God himself. They were praying vain petitions, uh, vain repetitions, we, we hear Jesus say. 
And so he gives them a new directory for, for prayer, a new way of thinking about it, a new way of organizing our prayers. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the way in which I want to proceed through this. To first think about the, the proper posture which Jesus is giving us. The, the proper posture. And then to say, what are the proper petitions? And to work through those each sort of carefully this morning of what is God calling us to pray for. And then to go to the next step as we begin to think about this church. What would these petitions look like in terms of praying for this church? Uh, to fulfill and be used of God in working out these petitions that Jesus has given us to pray. And so first, the, the proper posture. And that's simply that we are praying to a Father who is in heaven. And, and I want you to feel the tension of that. A Father who is in heaven. First, of course, we consider God as our Father for a number of reasons. You could say in a, in a general sense, He's a Father by creation. Acts chapter 17 will speak of us all being his offspring. But we have to go more specifically than that. We're not only his offspring, his children, uh, he's our father by creation, but more specifically by election. Ephesians 1 verse 4, that we are, uh, that he has chosen us in him. He becomes our father. He adopts us as his children. So by his special grace, we know that we belong to him. We are now his. We could say even further, not only by, by election, but also by the special grace of, of sanctifying us. We are born of God, sanctified by God, set apart, and therefore by that special grace, we belong to Him, and we can call Him our Heavenly Father. Now, what encouragement should that be to you? But all the encouragement in the world. You think of the way in which we should be treated. We were sinners who deserve to be punished. We're made his children to be loved and protected. We were aliens and strangers, and God has made us sons and daughters. We're his children now, and he's our father. We have no right to be in his presence, and God made us to be in his family. I mean, think of the joy of that, that I would now long to run into the presence of this one who has done this Gracious work for me. I deserve none of that. And so the proper posture begins this way, that I would see, he's my father. He's like the best of earthly fathers, for I'm reminded that sometimes the idea of father is a, is a, a repulsive thought in our mind. If your earthly father has not loved you well, he's the best of earthly fathers. He's far superior to that. And our hearts should be all the more encouraged to run to him. And pray to him, to draw near to him as, as our father. And yet to be reminded, of course, there's a tension here. Not just a father, but a father who's in heaven. A father who, who dwells on high. And therefore, as we approach him, there should be something of a, of a pause as well. We begin to think of this imagery of heaven. It's in heaven that we learn of God's sovereign power. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 115.3 who says our God is in the heavens, who does whatever he pleases. Be reminded of that power. He's all-powerful. And therefore, there should be something of a, of a caution to be reminded of what this God is like. He governs the universe. He orders all the occurrence.
experiences of mankind. It's in this imagery of heaven that we are reminded of God's glory and majesty. The psalmist will tell us in Psalm 104, speaking about God being covered in light and being clothed in honor. And therefore, we're reminded he is, he is not like us. He is above all worldly princes. He is above all, all things. It's in this imagery of heaven that we learn of his omniscience. Hebrews 4 talks about all things being unmasked before his eyes, all things being naked as before him. That while men might plot and, uh, and conspire against the church, God, God sees that. Uh, as we might have ways in which we can look down upon people, spy on them, see them from higher spots, God is greater yet. He's not simply on a tower, but his tower is the, the highest heavens. And therefore he looks down upon all, not only the actions of the, the, the men and women, but even their thoughts and perceives them from afar. He knows all those things. And therefore put the imagery together. There's a sense in which I should run into his presence as a child runs into the presence of his mother and father knowing that, that they are welcome there. At the same time, run into that presence with a sense of of fear and respect and awe. This is my Father who's in heaven. This is the one who is who is uh, very tender and yet very tough and able to do all things. And therefore, with this proper posture, we run to him as a dear father who runs on high. We run in there with boldness, and yet we run with a, a healthy fear of the Sovereign One who is able to do all that he plans. Here comes the proper posture with which we pray. And now for the petition. How does Jesus encourage us to pray? There's three that we'll consider this morning and then three tonight. The first petition is, to, is in verse 9. Hallowed be your name. What does he mean by the name of God? But all the attributes of God. All that he is. All that he has done. That we would, we would desire for that name. His, his power. His wisdom. His holiness. His justice. His goodness and truth. All that he has, for that to be honored, that to be glorified, that to be lifted on high in our hearts and in our in our na- in our in our uh, our experience, and asking that it to be holy is asked to be that it be glorified. The glory of God should be the first thing that the children of God desire. That our Father's name is glorified. Their Father's name is properly understood in our own life in the lives of our families, in the lives of our church, in the lives of our community. People would not want to degrade the name of God. They would want to lift it up. Not to speak slightly of that name, but to honor and respect it. It should be the, the beat of our heart. It was, of course, the, the object of one of Jesus' own prayers. John chapter 12, Father, glorify your name. It's the purpose for which the world was created, that God would be glorified in all of us. The reason for which saints are called and converted. It is the chief thing that we should seek that in all things that God would be glorified. And so when we begin to pray, as we're praying that day in and day out, it should be one of the first things we pray for. God, may your name be great. May it be glorified. May it be honored by all. It should be the beat of our heart. It should be the words of our prayers. Secondly, that we would pray, verse 10, your kingdom come. 
What is the kingdom of God but the rule of God over the people of God? God is the king. He's extending that kingdom out, ruling and reigning over the hearts and lives of his people. And so we begin to think of that kingdom. We can think of the, the kingdom of his grace, whereby he, he in his grace comes to us and conquers us, calls us to himself, makes us citizens in that kingdom, whereby we live out of gratitude for all that he's done. We can think of the kingdom of his, his glory, whereby he is extending his reign over, just like it was in Genesis chapter 1, he's recapturing all of that. Where things are not only no longer in rebellion against him, but now joyfully submitting to him. That kingdom of glory which will ultimately set up, be fully set up, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again and expels all sin and sorrow and Satan. That glorious day when the kingdom of glory shall shine in all its beauty. We should long for that. And if that's our desire, that we would no longer experience these things, that God ultimately would no longer experience rebellion and ingratitude for what he's done, then we pray. Lord, may that kingdom come. May it come in greater measure. May it come in its fullness as the Lord Jesus comes again. More and more bring your kingdom of grace and your kingdom of glory. And so pray for that. And then pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God tells us his will in his word, doesn't it? And so as we're praying this petition this, that God's will would be done, it is also pray that God's law might be understood. That people might know what it is that God has called us to do. And that knowing his word, that they would, more than that, that they would they long to do it. That they would do it consistently and readily, even perfectly, as that's happening now in heaven. It's possible because it happens every day in heaven. And so as God's conquering his people, bringing them to faith in Christ, growing us in grace, the day will come when it will be done perfectly. And in the meantime, we're praying that it will be more and more the reality, more and more the reality of my own heart, that I will want to do the will of my Heavenly Father. More and more the reality in our hearts, that we would long to... To, to die to sin and, and to live for righteousness. We just pray that God would do that work even, even in us as we're praying these petitions. That we would know the will of God and obey the will of God and find it a joy to submit to that. And so that's where Jesus is pushing us to pray these petitions. But now think of how it's to work itself out. How does God move in our hearts we're going to pray for the expansion of the kingdom of God through the church. How do we make this connection? How, how does God make that happen? How does he bring his kingdom? How does he move in the hearts of men? Because their desire is that God's name would be great. And his kingdom would come. And his will would be done. How does he change their hearts? He does it through the gospel. He does it by bringing us to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think of the next step. If that all those petitions are going to be worked out through the gospel, to whom has he given the responsibility to hold out that glorious gospel? He's given it to the church. He's given it to us. It's our role. And so think for a moment about the connection between the, the church and the kingdom of God. It is the church that is the manifestation of the kingdom. It's the church where you begin to say, where is God at work who is building his kingdom? You see it in the church. You see it in our lives. 
The church is the family through which the, the working of the kingdom gives, gives birth. Oh, it's imperfect. It's an imperfect manifestation of what God is ultimately going to do. And yet, nonetheless, we begin to understand even the, the parables, like in Matthew 13 of the wheat and tares. There's good there. There's wheat there. But there's tares there. But nonetheless, the wheat's growing. The, the righteous people of God that have been sanctified, they're growing in that. And so we begin to see that manifestation growing. It's in, it's in the church. It's the church that is to be the sphere of the kingdom of God in this age. It's not what it's going to be one day. And yet now God is at work. Uh, he's building his kingdom through the sphere of the transforming power of the kingdom of God in the church. It's the church that is to be the, the instrument of the kingdom of God in the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are the city that can't be hidden, whereby people understand something of the king because they're seeing the kingdom extended through, through the church. And so think for a moment. The Lord Jesus is calling us to pray these petitions. God, may, may your name be glorified. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. He's going to accomplish that through the gospel. And he's given us the gospel to not only be stewards of that and to, to, to protect it in terms of being faithful to it, but also to, to proclaim it. And therefore, I would say, in addition to these petitions, you can begin to say, there are, there are other prayers which God has shown us in his word that support the Lord's prayer. There are extensions of that, whereby you and I can say, this is my desire. God, that your name would be great and your kingdom would come and your will would be done. So I want to pray even more and more for that to work itself out. So how else should I pray? How can I pray for Trinity? How can I pray for the ministers and the members of this church whereby they are fulfilling these desires? If your passion is that God's name was great, his kingdom would come, his will would be done, how should I pray? I remember coming back from Christmas break and hearing uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of young families at first pray. And so one of the things that invariably happens is the pastor, they, they want to tell you what they got for Christmas, all these things. So I'm listening about army men and Barbie dolls and video games and on and on. And what strikes me is the joy that is on the faces of these children as they tell these stories. And I begin to say, oh, that I would have the same joy that they find in something so temporal, in something so serious as God himself. Your name would be great. Your kingdom would come. Your will would be done. That's my, that's my heart, O oh Lord. Therefore, how else can I pray for the church? I'm going to give you a number of petitions to pray. Throwing those particular petitions out of these general ones. Six ways in which you can pray for this your church. And my goal this morning is simply to, to gird you, not that you would uh, formally pray for things to sound, uh, in vain repetition, to sound good, but that it would, if it's the earnest desire of your heart that you would faithfully pray for these things. And God would be pleased to make Statesboro a profoundly different place because this church is here, laboring in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here are things to pray for. Six petitions to pray. First, that God would raise up more laborers. That God would raise up more laborers. He, he tells us to pray for that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 through 39. 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. It should be the regular practice of this church if we be serious about God's name being lifted up and his kingdom coming and his will to be done, that we would understand it would be insufficient to simply pray for the ministries we have now, but that God would continue to raise up more and more and more since his word goes on, not just now, but for, for years and years to come, so long as the Lord tarries, and not just here in this place, but all over the world. We would pray that God would raise up ministers of the gospel. So we support, a supporting prayer would be this petition, Lord, raise up more laborers. Secondly, to pray for faithfulness in the pulpit. To pray for that. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate uh, themselves, I'm sorry, for, for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is a, a command from the Lord that we would pray, even as Paul is burdened of that way, that we should pray for that as well. That the men who take this pulpit, that the, the teachers who teach in these classrooms would always be faithful to, to God's Word. Now I'll simply say, I'm not worried about the men that are here, but all of us are sinful. And over time, this is what will happen. Paul says it's going to happen more and more. And it has happened. Just look at church history. And so pray for them, that God would do this work. God would be the one that we trust in to make sure the faithfulness uh, continues, even in this pulpit. We're to pray thirdly for the conversion of unbelievers. Paul in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 through 7, speaks this way. First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Here's Paul pleading that God would uh, for those around him, not just in authority, but he knows that God desires all people to be saved. And so our prayer is that, that God would take people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, all types of people, and save them. And he tells us that we should be praying for those things over and over again. Fourthly, to pray for spiritual maturity of believers. We keep praying for this. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone Mature in Christ. This is the goal of the ministry of the apostles. Not just that they would be saved, but that they would be mature in Christ. They would continue to grow and grow in their knowledge and love of Christ. And the way they reflect the Lord Jesus. That they might indeed submit to his kingship and do his will in their life. And we're to, we're to pray for that. So that's the work of God. We're to pray fifthly for unity in the church. John chapter 17, Jesus sets the example of what this looks like. Jesus prays in this way, John 17, verse 20. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through the word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's the Lord Jesus' prayer for unity. Now why? Why would he pray for unity? One of the surest ways to distract us from holding out the hope of the gospel to other people is that we would turn on one another. That we'd be so frustrated with one another, we'd forget about caring for those around us. And Jesus says, I pray for unity. That we might be bonded so that we can be focused on our, on our task. That we might further be bonded one to another so the world would say, how in the world are they bonded together? There must be something happening there. So pray for unity in the church. One last petition, just to encourage you. To pray for the church to trust Jesus to grow the church. Let me say that again. To pray for the church to trust Jesus to grow the church. Do you remember the occasion between Jesus uh, and Peter in, in Matthew chapter 16? He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds with those words, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you the truth, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The Lord Jesus makes it very clear. He's the one that builds the church. And so it seems to me, if we're not praying, Jesus, will you build the church? By our lack of praying, we're demonstrating that our confidence is that we would build the church. Our own wisdom, our own cleverness, our own persuasion. And yet time and time again, we should be pulling ourselves back, praying, Jesus, would you do this glorious work? Would you do what you said you would do? Would you build the church? Our trust, trust is in you to do this work. So our petition, the Lord Jesus gives us. And the question becomes as we close, will it really make a difference? If I'm praying, those petitions he's given us, that God's name would be great, that his kingdom would come, his will would be done. As I'm praying the specific petitions with regard to the church, which is the, where the kingdom is manifest itself, will it really make a difference? Will God hear these prayers? C.S. Lewis writes in this way, can we believe that God really modifies his actions in response to the suggestions of men? For infinite wisdom does not need telling what is best. And infinite goodness needs no urging to do it. But neither does God need any of those things that are done by finite agents, whether living or inanimate. He could, if he chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food. Or give us food without the aid of farmers, bakers, butchers. Or knowledge without the aid of learned men. Or convert the heathen without missionaries. Instead, he allows soils and weather and animals and muscles and minds and wills of men to cooperate in the execution of his will. He's quoting Pascal here. Quote, God instituted prayer in order to lend to the creatures the dignity of causality. End quote. Lewis continues. But not only prayer, whenever we act at all, he lends us that dignity. It is not really stranger nor less strange that my prayers should affect the course of events than that my other actions would do so. 
They are not advised or changed in God's mind. That is his overall purpose. But that purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including the prayers of his creatures. Now think about Lewis is just sad. We understand that unless a person hears the word of God, either through the written word or through a spoken word, they, they can't believe in Christ because God uses means. And therefore, it needs to be a, a written word or spoken word to another person whereby they should be converted. It makes sense if God will use those means, he also uses the means of our words to him, of our prayers to him. It should be no less strange to us that even if he needs us and, and uses us, rather, uses us to speak the word to others, he uses us speaking to God through us. And so therefore, let me encourage you. It makes all the difference in the world in the Lord's economy. That's the way he has ordained it, that we would pray for these petitions. That Jesus says, I want to teach you that not just so you'll have something to pray, but because he responds. And when we pray for the church, he hears us and he uses us. And so here's my, here's my encouragement today. Out of a love for the name of God, out of a love for the kingdom of God, out of a longing for the will of God to be done, will you pray these petitions? And most specifically, pray for this particular church that God might be pleased to extend the knowledge of himself so that more and more would come underneath that rule and honor his will and therefore glorify his name. Out of love for Christ, let's pray and teach him. Let's pray together as we close. What a joy, O oh Lord, that you have dignified us in this way, that we might be agents and participants in the building of the kingdom of God, us who didn't deserve to belong here in the first place. And yet you've given, it, given us the joy of speaking these truths, knowing our Heavenly Father, who's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or imagine. Our Heavenly Father, hears our prayers. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.